Father, we do thank you and praise you for your son Jesus, who gave himself for us. And we thank you that uh, you were so kind and merciful to send him. Father, we're thankful for your word, which reveals your son. We're thankful that you use your word to grow us in respect to salvation. And I pray you would do that this morning, that we would continue our worship as we look in your word. Pray our hearts would be prepared, ready to receive your word, to welcome it, that we might allow you to change us. And I pray for those here who who maybe don't know you, Lord God, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would break through the, the heart of stone and reveal your love and grace and mercy in the person of your son Jesus who died for us. Father, thank you for this time. We commit it to you now. In your son's precious name, amen. Well, if you're a true believer, I'm pretty certain that you understand the reality of what Scripture says concerning trials. James makes it clear that we are to count it joy or reckon it to be joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that we would be complete and lacking in nothing. The reality is that uh, there, is the, there is the great potential that each and every one of us will encounter a multifaceted trials as we go through this life. And some of those trials can be very serious. Whether it's a physical trial, a relational trial, financial trial, trial at home, trial at work, trial with uh, your family, diseases, cancer, accidents, whatever it might be, these trials certainly come upon us and they can distress us. And they do distress us. But we are to count it joy, understanding that God is testing our faith. He is proving where we really are in relationship to him, that we might be complete and lacking in nothing. Now, within the reality of all the different trials that we believers can go through, there's a narrower sphere of trials that believers will go through. It's what we see in Scripture is called suffering, suffering for Christ. Certainly, we suffer in trials, but there's a different type of suffering that we see in Scripture. We have many different types of trials, but in, within that, we have what we'll see today, the reality that each and every one of us as true believers are going to suffer for Christ. We're going to suffer for Christ. The Apostle Paul told the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul told Timothy, and indeed, though all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. If you're a true believer, at some time or another, we're going to suffer for Jesus if we're, for trusting him and doing what is right. Now, these sufferings may come at work, uh, on your job. As you do what is right, people may persecute you, mock you, whatever it is. It may come in the context of your family or at home. As you do what is right and you are seen wrongly or, or spoken evil of. It may come in the context of the church when you obey the Lord and, and so-called believers or, or brothers in sin turn against you. It may simply be those who malign you in the context of our everyday walk in the world. But if, a true, if you're a true believer, the reality is suffering is coming. And so how are we to uh, respond to that? 
The Lord Jesus made it clear that no one builds a building without counting, a co- counting the cost. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is a temporal cost. And one of that part of that cost is suffering, dying to self, giving up one's life. And when that suffering comes upon us for obeying Christ, not for sin, not simply general trials, although some of the principles we can use here and understand will apply, but most directly, what do we do when we suffer for Christ? Would you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2? And I'm glad to get back to 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 23. And we're going to see that this is the pinnacle of the book of 1 Peter, that we ultimately are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ in response to suffering. Suffering that is being experienced by us and our brethren around the world, as Peter would say in chapter 5. Now let me remind you of the context of the book of 1 Peter. Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor. It's about 64 AD, the beginning. It is very close to Nero's persecution of the church literally a fiery ordeal. And there are a group of believers. These are a group of believers living in the Roman Empire during this wicked emperor Nero. And now within this, Peter has reminded them already that they've been chosen for such a great salvation, that they are simply residing as alien sojourners on this earth. And in this great salvation, it has been brought forth through uh, the wonderful reality of what Christ has done for us. We've been born again by God's grace, great mercy to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This tremendous, tremendous present salvation has an eternal hope that is alive and a future inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven. And it is protected. We are protected by God's power for this wonderful salvation ready to be revealed. We saw that in chapter 1. And yet we also saw the temporal realities of possible distressing trials in this life. That if God deems so, we are going to be distressed by various trials. But we need to reckon it and count it joy and rejoice in our salvation, even in the midst of that. Because God is taking those trials and he is purifying us. He is heating up the metal and and pulling the dross to the top that he might refine us and make us more like Christ. And if you'll remember in the rest of chapter 1, we saw how we as chosen sojourners are to respond to such a great salvation. How we are to live. And we have the commands. First of all, we are to hope, fix our hope completely in the grace to be revealed when Christ comes. We are to be holy because he is holy. We are to live in godly fear because of the great price that was paid for our salvation. We are to love the body of Christ because we have born again, been born again unto this. And in beginning in chapter 2, we are to be yearning for the word of God. It's our food that we might grow in respect to salvation if we have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, after that first uh, command, we have just encouragement from the Apostle Paul. He encourages us that what God is doing in the lives of true believers, we are being built up as a spiritual house. We are the holy priests within that, offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And we saw that the precious value of Christ is for us. But yet those who reject Christ, he will be the stumbling stone to which one stumbles to their eternal destiny in terms of damnation for rejecting Christ. And then we see that Paul encouraged us concerning our identity in Christ. 
that we believers in Jesus are a distinct kind, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we are a people for God's own possession, that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it's all because we have received his mercy. And then we came to the application portion of the letter to which we are in right now, where we saw in verse 11 and 12 that as aliens and temporary residents on this earth, we are to stay away from fleshly lusts, which war with our souls. The foundational statement for the rest of the book. And we should be keeping our behavior excellent among Gentiles. And one reason as we keep our behavior excellent is so there would be a door for redemptive opportunities. As they observe and slander us for our good deeds, they might glorify God on the day that he visits them, the day of visitation. And it's from this point that Peter begins to move to discuss one aspect of our behavior among Gentiles, which would be our relationship to the governing authorities. And we saw in relationship to government, we we are to submit and obey and honor and pray, and we are to honor all men, and we are to honor the king. And then the last time we were in this book, we saw how we are to behave as sla- with slaves and masters. And it really applies to the sphere now in the work relationship that we are to continually habitually submit ourselves to the authority that God has placed in our lives. We are to do so with conscience towards God, fearing him, doing the right thing. And if we should suffer, we shouldn't suffer for sin, but if we suffer for doing what is right, this finds favor with God. And it is from this point the Apostle Peter then jumps to the central reality of the book of First Peter concerning following the example of Christ in the midst of suffering. So with that in mind, how can we endure unjust suffering for Christ? We're going to see, hopefully, and learn to follow in the footsteps of our perfect example again first peter 1 chapter chapter 2 verses 21 to 23 and and again we're going to be looking at 21 to 23 but it really does connect from everything we've seen previously at verse 11 and it also will go through to verse 25 you know my desire was to teach through to verse 25 there's just too much good truth here but we need to know that it's connected so what i want to do is back up and read from 11 through 25, and then emphasize the portion that we will be looking at, which is 21 to 23. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, to stay away, we saw, which wage war against the soul. We all know that, don't we? Keep your behavior excellent among Gentiles. That's non-believers in this context. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may account on, your, on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation or the day that he visits them. And we see here, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether a king to a king in a, or as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers doers, and to the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, You may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And remember this phrase, doing right, doing right. We'll see this throughout the book. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect or all fear. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards man, 
excuse me, towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. That's key, suffering unjustly. For what credit is it there when you sin and you're harshly treated and you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right, again, those terms I want to keep pointing out, when you do what is right and suffer for it, this is about doing what is right and suffering for it, and if for it, you patiently endure, it finds favor with God. And then here we have our passage. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one, to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. How can we endure unjust suffering? How can we endure unjust suffering? Again, it's going to come if you're a true believer. Today we're going to see two things, and Lord willing, one thing next week. The first thing we're going to see is that we need to understand first and foremost that we have been called unto this. If you don't know your calling in Christ and what to expect as a Christian, you're going to be caught off guard. You're going to be surprised by it when it happens. And we need to understand and need to be reminded. And then we need to understand what God is doing through that so we would respond rightly in the midst of that. We need to understand we've been called to suffer. Look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. Notice our passage begins with this term for. It signifies an explanation. He's explaining. He's expanding upon what he has just spoken of. If you look back a few verses that I just read, remember we saw in verse 18, servants be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. And then here's the key. For this finds favor for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you sin and treat it harshly, you endure it with patience, but when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For, for you have been called for this purpose. The reality is, our passage is speaking about suffering unjustly. Not simply suffering, not simply trials, those come. And we can gain some principles from this. But it is specifically speaking about suffering unjustly. It is suffering and then enduring under it for the sake of conscience towards God, verse uh, 19. It is suffering for doing what is right, middle of verse 20. It is suffering unjustly, verse 19. We can suffer for sin, and that's not what this passage is talking about. We can suffer in the midst of multifaceted trials, and those are difficult, and God is working through those. But that is not what this passage is speaking of specifically. It's speaking of unjust suffering for doing what is right in the context of trusting and obeying the Lord. If you trust and obey the Lord in every sphere of your life, you're going to experience suffering. 
If you trust him in your family relationships, you're going to experience conflict. Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. If you do it at work, there's going to be some conflict at times, and even within the church. So specifically, it's suffering for obeying Christ. It's suffering for Christ. And so we have here 4, verse 21. You have been called for this purpose. He's saying we've been called literally unto this. Well, what is it, the this that we are called unto? Obviously, in context, it is suffering unjustly for doing what is right while trusting conscience, having a conscience towards God in the context and entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously. For you have been called for this, literally. And notice he says, since Christ also suffered for you. Since Christ also, that points to the reality that Christ's suffering was unjust suffering. He suffered not because he sinned. He was sinless. He suffered because he did what was right and obeyed the Lord God. Christ also, also suffered for you. We'll see later on that Jesus Christ was delivered up by the hands of godless men to the cross. He suffered unjustly. His obedient and trusting response to the suffering brought about our redemption. Believer, we have been born again and we have been called for this purpose. Called unto this. This is pretty important. Now we have a reference to our calling. We saw back in chapter 2, verse 9, that we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brother and sister, we used to walk in darkness. We were slaves to sin. We were blinded. We did not know where we were going. We loved our sin. We loved the darkness. Yet God, through his Son, illumined our hearts by his Spirit to the gospel that we might see the reality of our sin and the glory of Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. And he called us out of darkness into a relationship with him through the gospel. Scripture has a lot to say about our being called. There is one calling, right? By the way, there's one. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. All the T's and then go to 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. The Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, but we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved or excuse me, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this that he called you through the gospel that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God calls people into a relationship with himself through the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. The reality that he died for us. He calls us unto himself. Into a saving relationship by Jesus Christ with the Lord. With him. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, we were called by his grace. We have a heavenly calling and a holy calling. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 Timothy 1 9. Through God, who is faithful, we were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, 1 Corinthians 1.9. And earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, the Holy One called us. And then as I shared before in chapter 2, verse 9, we were called out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
Now that is the basis of our general calling unto salvation. But within that calling unto salvation, there are some particular elements within that. And one of them is that we have been called to suffer. We've been called to suffer. Notice what our passage says. For you have been called for this purpose. This purpose. Called for this. This is one facet within our calling. Since Christ also suffered for you, or literally suffered unjustly in this context for you. Ugh. We don't want to hear that, do we? We don't want to hear that uh, when we become Christians, we've been called to suffer unjustly. But that's exactly what this passage is saying. The temporal reality, reality of being a believer is there are temporal sufferings for the glories to follow. When you obey Jesus Christ in the midst of relationships in this earth, there will be temporal suffering. We've been called to this. And indeed, when we share the gospel, we need to share the cost. If you come to Jesus Christ, you're going to lose everything right now, but you will gain everything in eternity. And you also gain a relationship with the living God to which you did not have. We've been called unto this. We're going to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Yes, there's lots of other sufferings. I think Christians get so caught up in all the other sufferings that we go through. And yes, they are there, but God is purifying us through those. But if you are following Jesus, even in those sufferings, there's going to be, as we'll see, suffering for Christ. We have many different types of trials, but there are the sufferings that come for doing what is right. Again, what I shared in Philippians chapter 1, 29, for it has been granted to us for Christ's sake, granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, and indeed all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Turn to John chapter 15, John 15, verse 18. It is not a mystery for us that we are going to come into conflict and suffering for doing the right thing. Not for being uh, sinful, but for doing the right thing. Certainly conflict comes from doing the wrong thing. There's no doubt about that. But this is for doing the right thing. John chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus says, and this is the night he's betrayed, and he's speaking to his disciples. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours also they will keep yours also but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me turn to matthew chapter 5 the lord jesus is sharing the blessed those who are of those who are blessed those who have a real relationship with god when he says blessed are blessed are blessed he's saying hey these are ones who are blessed because they evidence a true relationship with the living god Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. This is the final blessed. And he, and he changes gears here. 
Because he's saying, blessed are, are those, blessed are those. And then he will say, blessed are you. Are you. He's been saying, blessed are the, are the, and, and those. And then he will change it and say directly, blessed are you. Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. It's happened. For the sake of what? Righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're blessed if you have been persecuted for doing what is right, for trusting Jesus, having his righteousness manifest in your words and deeds. Blessed are you specifically. Now it's personal. When men, here's the kind of persecution we see, cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. That's what the majority of persecution is. Now certainly there was physical persecution unto death, whatever it might be. But he says here, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we follow Jesus Christ, obeying him, doing what is right, we're going to suffer. We're going to share in his sufferings. We're going to share in his sufferings in the sense that we receive suffering that is due and meant for him. But we are in his body. We are in the body of Christ. You say, man, I didn't sign up for this. And I would say you didn't count the cost. There is a temporal cost with an eternal gain. And within that temporal cost, God, as we will see, is actually using our righteous response as we trust Jesus to those sufferings to bring about his will as he did with Jesus Christ as the perfect example to bring about the greatest good, which was our salvation through the greatest evil suffering brought upon him. For you have been called back in First Peter for this purpose. We've been called to this. If you don't realize this, you're missing a major element of why God called you into his kingdom. He will use suffering in your lives and my lives for doing what is right to bring about redemptive opportunities to bring glory to him. It is not about us. It is not about us. For you have been called to this purpose. And when we suffer unjustly and endure it, it finds favor with God, his grace towards us, because he's working through us to accomplish his will in that unjust suffering. Therefore, we are not to be surprised when it happens. We're not to be surprised when family members treat us wrongly because we did what is right. When those even in the body of Christ who may or may not be Christians treat us wrongly when you do what is right. When those at work who don't know Christ treat you wrongly when you do what is right. We're not to be surprised. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter's making this case throughout the book, by the way, and we will see it in pieces all the way along, to the point at the very end he reveals that Satan is involved in this, that we're to be on the alert for our adversary, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, but we're to resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are happening by our brothers and sisters around the world. But God is going to affirm and comfort and establish us. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And by the way, when you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. You may lose friends. You may not have people like you. It may be a lonely road. But we think about Christ. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. From one man hid, his, hid their face. Why do we deserve more? First Peter chapter 4, 12. Beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. 
but to the degree, notice what he says, you share the sufferings of Christ. It's not just simply in any generic trial. This is suffering for Christ. Keep on rejoicing, so that, at the, at, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are, notice what he says, reviled for the name of Christ. This is the, really, the way the suffering comes. We're being reviled, whatever it might be. For the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rest upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but let him in that name glorify God. You're suffering because you're following and obeying Christ. If that's the case, glorify God. And don't be surprised. It takes a change of mind to, mindset in the context of faith to recognize that we are going to suffer. Let's not be naive. Let's not be children in our thinking where we come into situations and we, we don't understand what's going on. Let's not be children in our thinking. Let's grow up together. We've been called to suffer. We've been called unto this. And within this, God is working his glorious, grand plan within this his glorious grand plan so how can we endure unjust suffering how can we endure it the first thing is we need to understand we have been called unto this it's going to happen if you are obeying jesus christ and following him it's going to happen it is going to happen understand that understand that secondly as we'll see we need to learn to follow in his footsteps, in, his, in our response. We need to know how to respond once it does happen. It's one thing to know it's happening, but when it happens to us, we need to know how to respond. And we're going to see that we are to learn how to follow in the footsteps of Christ in regards to unjust suffering. Verse 21 again of chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth and while being reviled he did not revile in return while suffering he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously jesus christ is our perfect example on how we are to respond to suffering in the flesh as we follow jesus in this life he says, for you, have, Peter says, for you have been called for this. You've been called for this, suffering unjustly, since Christ also suffered unjustly for you, as we'll see, leaving you an example. He says, since Christ also suffered for you. The term Christ speaks of Messiah. It speaks of the anointed one, the King of kings, King Jesus who died for our sins. He suffered unjustly and endured it with God's favor. And notice it says he did it, he suffered for you. For you. He, he suffered for us. Everything Jesus did was for us. Obviously he was obeying the Father, but here he suffered for us. He suffered and died. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we would receive forgiveness of sins and become children of God. He suffered unjustly in the context of the will of God to bring about our redemption. Look down at verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. 
What did Peter say back earlier in chapter 1, verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living home through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from death, through his suffering, death, and resurrection. Turn it back to chapter 1, verse 17. And if you address the Father as one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time staying there. I don't see that done very much. We're tempted not to, aren't we? We are. Conduct your signs in fear during your time staying here, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Notice what he says here. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times, what? For the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave glory, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus died for us. He died for us. He suffered for us. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Jesus Christ suffered and died for us to bring about our salvation. And the direct implication here is that, in the context of 1 Peter, that God uses unjust suffering in our lives as the body of Christ to bring about his will concerning redemption in the lives of those who don't know him. That they might glorify God in the day of visitation. That they might ask why we have hope. That they might see Christ in us, and as they revile, eventually see something as God convicts them that they might be saved. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you. And then notice what he says here. Leaving you an example, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. You, you, you suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. This is for us. What's interesting here is the term translated leaving means to leave something behind. It's not just leaving. When I leave my house, I'm leaving. But if I leave my briefcase there, I've left that briefcase behind. Leaving something behind. So what is it that Christ left behind for believers as an example to follow in his steps? The, the Greek word translated example here comes from, uh, the Greek word comes from the word hupogrammos. It speaks literally of a writing copy. It was something that was included, that had all the letters of the alphabet that would be given to beginners so that they could trace those letters and learn how to draw them. It was a hupogrammos. It was a tracing aid that you would exactly trace those letters. And so Jesus has left behind a tracing aid for us. We are to trace over it exactly. But what are we to do? Look at our verse. For you have been called for this purpose, suffering unjustly for Christ, doing what is right, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving behind a tracing aid or an example for you to follow in his steps. Obviously, he left behind a tracing aid for us to follow in his steps in regards to how we are to respond to unjust suffering. Yes, we've been called to unjust suffering, but how do we respond? We'll see 
the Lord Jesus' behavior as a tracing aid, which includes underpinning everything he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. It's not simply behavior. It's behavior in the context of dependence. We'll see. Christ left behind a tracing aid for us to follow exactly in his steps. When these things come upon us, we have the exact way we are to respond as we look at the person of Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this specifically, the example left behind, before we look at the specific example, I want us to notice what I've already pointed out already, that the Lord Jesus understood and knew why he was suffering, and we need to understand and know why we suffer. Back in our passage, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Jesus knew why he came. He knew why he was going to suffer. We see in the book of Hebrews, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. If we know why God is allowing us to suffer, we're not going to be surprised by it. If we know what he's doing in it, we're not going to be surprised by it. And as we look at Christ as our example, we see he understood what the Father was doing. Hebrews chapter 10, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. And I can't read the whole thing, so I'm just going to read bits and pieces here. Verse 5, therefore, when he comes into the world, that's Jesus, he says, that's Jesus, sacrifice and offering thou, speaking of the Father, has not desired, but a body thou, the Father, has prepared for me, Jesus. That's what he's saying. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Hey, the shadows didn't please you. The fulfillment of those shadows is what it's all about, Jesus is saying. And that's him. He says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the role of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And then if you go to verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We need to understand that Jesus knew exactly why he was suffering, to do the will of the Father. And when we understand that that's what the Lord wants us to do, to do his will. We see in Matthew 20, 28, uh, the Lord Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 22, turn to Luke 9, 22. Jesus knew exactly why he came. He knew exactly why he was suffering. And when we understand we're suffering so that God can bring about his will, his redemptive will in our lives, it, it changes our attitude towards what God allows to come towards us. Luke 9:22, saying, The Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. The reality is he knew he was going to die and he knew what would happen. We need to know the realities we're going to suffer for Christ. We're not redemptively suffering. No, Christ did that. But we're suffering as his people following him. He says here, and he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. In 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verse 9, we have the statement, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Jesus knew why he was suffering. We need to understand that. But besides that understanding, 
We also need to look at how he responded to suffering, his example to follow in. Here you go, back to our passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And look at this example. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. And this underpins the whole thing of our perfect example, by the way. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Here is the tracing pattern. This is the tracing pattern to follow when we suffer unjustly. When you encounter suffering for obeying Christ, this is how we are to respond. And by the way, it is completely contradictory to the way our flesh wants to respond when we enter into suffering unjustly. I'm not saying for sin. When we're actually suffering for doing what is right, we can then be tempted to respond in the wrong way. But here we have the tracing pattern. And it's interesting, in verses 22 to 24, we have, if you were a Greek reader, you would hear some repetition. There's this term has, which means who. I'm literally going to say it this way so you can hear that repetition. Literally says, you can literally translate these verses this way from 22. Who did not sin, nor was any seat found in his mouth? 23. Who, being reviled, was not reviling, returned, suffering, was not threatening, was trusting himself, to the one who judges righteously. 24. Who uh, our, sin, our sins did bear in his body. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And it's about what he did. It's, he's our perfect example. We're to follow in his footsteps. Who did this? Who didn't do this? Who did this? Who didn't do this? Who did this? It's very important to note that Peter, inspired by the Spirit, as, as Bob shared earlier, uh, begins to quote Isaiah 53 and allude to it heavily in this passage between verses 22 and 25. And we're going to get to each individual verse, but I want to share an overview. Verse 22 is a quote of Isaiah 53, verse 9. Verse 23 appears to be an allusion to Isaiah 53, verse 7. Verse 24 points to Isaiah 53, 12, 4, 11, and 5. And verse 25 points to Isaiah, verse 53, verse 6. And if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, which we heard earlier, it is about the redemption that would come through the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So here we see Jesus Christ suffered at the hands of men in accordance with God's grand redemptive plan, his grand And when we suffer, we are to respond by following in the exact tracing pattern of his footsteps. What does that look like? Well, first of all, we're going to see what he did not do and then what he did do. We're going to see that contrast throughout. And ultimately, you could summarize this passage. He did not respond to suffering wrongly or sinfully. Instead, he entrusted the righteous God, the righteous judge. That's the pattern that's left behind for us to trace. Now notice, first of all, while suffering, we see what he didn't do. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
It's an interesting statement because it seems to be almost repeated in a different way with the next one, reviling, return, uttering threats, but I think it isn't repeated. I'm certain that it is specifically there in this way because God intended it this way. First of all, he committed no sin. Obviously, in the context of responding to unjust suffering, we might want to sin. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 9. Isaiah 53, verse 9. This is a quote of the verse we have here, and it helps us maybe understand a little bit of what's being said. Isaiah 53, verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because, here we go, this is the quote, he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That helps us understand this. Who committed no sin, what Peter's referring to is what is shared in Isaiah. He didn't physically respond to the suffering. He didn't verbally use deceitful words or guile to get out of the suffering. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. You know, when suffering, someone could resist it, right? Resist it physically or verbally. Isaiah 53 says he did no violence, and no deceit was found in his mouth. This is what Peter's quoting. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. We know that Jesus Christ did not sin in action or word. He's the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, but yet he's also God incarnate in human flesh as our example. He was not relying on his own abilities to not sin. Obviously, he's sinless, but he was entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. That is the pattern we are to look upon. The temptation for us to, 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 in situations like this might be to deceitfully manipulate with our words to get out of a situation that's tough. We might even physically try to do so. Jesus did not. And he is the tracing pattern we are to follow in. He didn't try to get out of unjust suffering. We are to follow in his footsteps. So how can we respond in the same way? How can we be like Jesus Christ? How can that be? He's the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. We're not the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He is. We are sinful creations, but yet we have been, we're, we're sinful men, but yet we have been redeemed by Christ. And when we abide in him, he enables us to do what he wants us to do, as we will see. When we trust ourselves to the one who judges righteously, give ourselves over in the midst of those things, trust in him rather than our abilities to resolve those situations or to take care of them or get out of them. We see that example laid forth in Jesus' life. Have you suffered unjustly? The temptation is to react in a sinful manner. Believe me, I know that temptation. Whether physically or verbally to get out of the mess or whatever it is, Trust the Lord instead. Obey his word. Know he is working through those things, his glorious redemptive plan. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Now notice the example continues, verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. The term revile speaks of hurling verbal abuse or threats. It speaks of a continual habitually. He was continually habitually verbally abused. And if you read through the gospel accounts, you see of the arrest and trials and the crucifixion of the cross, 
you see that he was continually verbally abused and reviled. How did Jesus respond? How are we to respond? While being continually reviled, he did not revile in return. He never reviled in return. He never paid back evil for evil. He is our perfect example to follow. Instead of reviling in return, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Turn to Romans chapter 12. The temptation in our flesh is to respond back, to sin. Jesus is our perfect example. And when we trust him and abide in him, he enables us to be like him. Only Christ can enable you to not revile in return. Only Christ can enable you to do so. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Never, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. That statement saying, hey, evil has been done to you. You may be very, you may be completely innocent. Never, never pay back evil. Your wife or husband treats you wrongly, reviles, says something wrong. Your someone at work says something. Whether, whatever it is, never, never do it. Never return it back. Never return it back. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, declares the Lord. Give yourself over to the one who judges righteously. He will deal with that righteously. We are not to deal with it. He is going to deal with it. Boy, so much conflict would be spared if we did this. If we did not return things. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. Brothers and sisters, we can be walking rightly. We can suffer for Christ, but we can blow it in our response. We're not to blow it in our response. We're to follow in his footsteps. Notice also he didn't threaten. Verse 23, and while being reviled, back in 1 Peter 2, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. This is a very interesting statement. We're to follow in his footsteps. Why would that be a temptation for us to threaten? We'll see in a second. You could say it literally this way. Continually, habitually, he uttered no threats. He was not threatening. Now, I believe the suffering alluded to here speaks of his suffering ultimately and bearing our sins on the cross. Being God incarnate, he could have threatened those who were sinning against him with the righteous reality of their punishment that is due their names for the heinous sin they were accomplishing. But he didn't do that. Because he was about God's will, not about his own justification in the moment. He was about bringing redemption and leaving the judgment in the hands of the Father. He didn't threaten when he was threatened. In Luke chapter 23, verse 33, it talks about the crucifixion. And when they came to this place of the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. But Jesus was saying, you're going to get it. No, he wasn't saying that at all. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He didn't utter threats. 
And as God, he could have said, this is your just punishment, do you? Stop what you're doing. He didn't because he was about God's will and God's plan and allowing the suffering that the God ordained to bring about redemption. Brother and sister, we can be tempted, whether it's internally or externally, when we are being persecuted for Christ to think God's going to get you. You're in big trouble. We could even say it. Don't threaten. Don't threaten. He uttered no threats. He uttered no threats. The reality is, biblically, yes, people sinning like that against us, they're going to get it. And if they don't repent, that's true. That's true. It's very serious to persecute the church. Paul saw that as the greatest sin. He was the greatest of sinners. Why? Because he persecuted the church. It's very serious. But it is not our place to declare anything as such. Instead, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. These are the realities that we come across when we're tempted. God wants us to see that these are the temptations and we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus when we suffer unjustly. Because ultimately, he is bringing about redemptive opportunities. We're not to sin physically or verbally to try to escape unjust suffering. We're not to revile in return. We're not to utter any threats. And if we have, we need to confess. But notice what we are to do instead, and this is so important. I'm going to read through the passage, and then we'll see it. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. This is the example. Who, or literally, who while being who being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. And that was a suffering unto death, by the way. But kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. That's the key. God is the righteous judge. He will take care of those who are mistreating us. He will take care of that. He has something else he is doing through it right now if we trust him and do his will. The term kept in trusting is a very interesting word. It comes from the Greek word paradidomai. It literally is translated many times handed over, delivered up, or betrayed. The idea that someone is betrayed, they're taken and they're delivered up, right? Handed over. It's a vivid word that helps us know exactly what to do in the midst of unjust suffering. We are to hand ourselves over to the Lord. We are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We give it over to him. I trust you, Lord, in the midst of this terrible suffering to bring about your redemptive opportunities and to judge righteously when the time comes. I trust you. I trust you. That is the perfect example for every situation for every relationship he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously instead of sinning in responding to unjust suffering we are to trust that he's a good and righteous god that he's working out through these sufferings his plan that those who are persecuting us they're not going to get away with it and hopefully they might be redeemed instead but he's going to take care of it. We need to trust him. We need to hand over our souls to him. And how do we do this in real time? What does it look like? 
Notice in our passage, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Verse 22, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Notice what this handing over looks like. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus continually handed himself over to the Father, knowing God judges righteously, and he humbled himself to do what is right. When we hand ourselves over, it's not simply just trusting. It has in context the idea of obeying him. Look in 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to what? The will of God. If you're suffering unjustly because you're, you're doing God's will, you're doing what is right, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And how so are they entrusting? In doing what is right. The Lord Jesus, instead of responding sinfully, entrusted his soul to a faithful creator. He trusted the Father. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously, and he did God's will. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Go back a little bit to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll see this just flowing throughout this book. It really is the central reality of what this book is about. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. After giving exhortations from after our passage concerning wives and submission to their husbands and husbands living in an understanding way, he says this, 1 Peter 3, 8, To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. See how that comes together? But giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. This is the context of suffering, by the way. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attentive to their prayer. Keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges righteously. He is watching out for you. He is attentive to your prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, again, that's what we're talking about, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord of your heart. Set him aside as Lord. And then go up to 1 Peter chapter 4. I want to read the whole context now of what we saw earlier. It's really just another explanation of how all of this that we're seeing here applies as we follow in his footsteps. First Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. He says, So also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer, troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty the righteous is saved, what will be the God or the godless men come of the godless men as sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls 
to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Trust the Lord. Hand over your soul to him and obey his word. Jesus Christ humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Follow his footsteps. We see them in scripture. Follow his footsteps. Trust the Lord. Obey the Lord. The song, Trust and Obey, for there is no other way. If we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's going to be times where we're going to suffer unjustly. How are we to respond? How are we to react to these things? First of all, we need to know that we've been called unto this. Secondly, we need to follow the exact footsteps, the exact tracing pattern of what Jesus Christ did. He didn't sin. He didn't revile and return. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Do you trust Jesus? Do you walk in a moment-by-moment faith with him? We've been called unto this, and we're going to suffer. We need to recognize this. It's part of our calling. And yet, as we'll see next week, Lord willing, God uses this same suffering for redemptive opportunities. It's not judgment time right now. It's redemption time. And Christ is working through his church. And he is using suffering to bring about his will. Some of you have never suffered for Christ. You've never truly done what is right with a right heart and really trusted the Lord in it. Maybe it's an evidence that you don't know the Lord, that you're not blessed. Blessed are those who've been persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you're a true believer, it's going to happen. It's going to happen in your family. It's going to happen wherever it might be. It's going to happen at times. Have you suffered for Christ? Have you suffered for Christ? Not for sin, not for other things, but suffered for truly relying on him, abiding in him, trusting him, responding rightly based on him doing that through you. Are you suffering for doing his will? Be encouraged. We've been called onto this. We've been called onto this. But if you've never suffered, maybe you don't know the Lord. God is a gracious God. He wants you to know him. He wants you to repent of your sins and trust in his son Jesus for salvation. Brothers and sisters, when that unjust suffering comes, we need to hand ourselves over to God. Are you suffering right now? Don't respond. Hand yourself over to God and do his will. Hand yourself over and do his will. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the perfect example that you have left for us in your son Jesus. Father, may we trace out perfectly our responses according to what he has done as we trust and hand ourselves over to you. May we respond not in the flesh, Lord God, but may we respond in a way that glorifies you as we trust you in everything. Lord God, I thank you even for the sufferings that you allow because we know you are doing good in them. Lord, help us to see them rightly. Help us to obey your word and do your will. We pray this in your name.